Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Sue Wilson tells us about the Highland Clearances and how they have been covered in literature through the years. I should start by saying that I'm really being rather cheeky in giving this talk. I'm not a historian and didn't even do history at O level, nor am I a Scot. My claim to some knowledge of Scotland stemming from my five years as a student in Aberdeen and several years working in Edinburgh. However, I hope today's talk will interest you and perhaps encourage you to find out more about our neighbour, which in my view is most definitely a different country with its own history, its own culture, its own distinctive literature, as well as its own legal and education systems. Whether or not independence would be a good thing is a matter of opinion. Some of what I know about the past is from novels, starting when I was about 11, when I used to read Geoffrey Treese and Rosemary Sutcliffe's novels. I'm sure some of you will remember them. Certainly the Sutcliffe one about the English Civil War turned me into a fan of General Sir Thomas Fairfax, Black Tom, and I've never recovered from that. I'm still a fan and still a parliamentarian. I'm interested in how people live, particularly women, and how they react to the events around them, not the battles fought by the military, nor the details of the politics of the time. So I'm an avid novel reader, both historical and contemporary. I've even, very belatedly, got interest in the Trojan Wars and the Iliad because of the recent state of novels looking at them mainly from women's point of view. I think that if writers have done proper research, they can convey to us both the facts about the period and what it was probably like to have been alive then. I'm very interested in how an author uses real-life characters as well as fictional ones, and whether putting words into their mouths and making up how they might have acted during real or fictional events is justified or even worth doing. Some people say, why write a novel about real events? You can't possibly know what people were thinking and feeling. My view is that you can imagine it, and it brings it alive to contemporary readers. I also think that historical fiction can tell us a lot about our own times. This talk is based on one I gave to the Literary Topics group, when our theme was islands, and I thought an adapted version might well interest this group. We'll be looking at several accounts of journeys on the west coast of Scotland, 
all written by outsiders, English for the most part, observing and trying to interpret what they learn from their travels. And I've also included three novels. One theme that recurs again and again, far more than I'd expected when I started preparing that first talk, is, or are, to be grammatically correct, the Highland Clearances of the 18th and 19th centuries. However, I also touched briefly on land use and ownership, the Gaelic language, and what the future of the west coast of Scotland may be. I remember years ago, we were in some fairly remote valley in Scotland and commented on how so very few people lived in the area. Bill thought it had always been like that because of poor soil, steep slopes and the great distance from any town or city. But my Scottish friend and I chorus, but what about the clearances? They play a very large part in Scottish memory and culture. And the Orkney poet George Mackay Brown summarises their effect in his autobiography. He said, whole communities of Gaelic-speaking Highlanders were persuaded or driven out of the valleys where they had lived, a poor but free community, for many centuries. Again, it was progress, that religion of 19th century man, that irresistible force that destroyed and uprooted everything that seemed to stand in its way. Nothing was sacred or beautiful, only money and profits counted. The ancient way of life of the Scottish Gales was destroyed with particular ferocity. Hadn't those clans twice in the 18th century threatened the crown and the ruling classes in England? And indeed, under Prince Charles Edward Stuart, caused a wild panic in London's corridors of power in 1745. Well, after that, I may as well end now, rather than making you listen to me going on. I've learned far more during the past couple of years about this part of Scottish history, partly through two books I was given as Christmas presents, Love of Country by Madeline Bunting and No Great Mischief by Alistair MacLeod. I already knew Adam Nicholson's Sea Room and he has some relevant things to say too. But first, we're going back to the 18th century in the company of Boswell and Johnson. They travelled to Scotland during the autumn of 1773. Why they chose that time of year to go to the West Coast, I can't imagine. I remember once leaving Scotland in late August, rather chilled, and we went south to the Lake District, which seemed to be basking in wonderful warmth and sunshine by comparison. However, our intrepid travellers set off in mid-August and didn't return to Edinburgh until mid-November. Indeed, Boswell comments very often about the dreadful weather they experienced and the delays and discomfort that storms cause. What on earth did they expect at that time of year? I don't know, but anyway. They stay in an amazing number of comfortable houses owned by rich, often anglicised owners, and meals and drink they receive are very important to Boswell, far more so than the scenery, the people, or Scottish history. 
In that weather, I think I would have been just the same. However, politics do feature briefly early in Boswell's account. He comments that Johnson is prejudiced against the Scots. He says, The truth is, like the ancient Greeks and Romans, he allowed himself to look upon all nations but his own as barbarians. If he was particularly prejudiced against the Scots, it was because they were more in his way, because he thought their success in England rather exceeded the due proportion of their merit. He's quite a character, Johnson, wasn't he? Let his views be known. I won't go deeply into English politics here, that will be quite beyond me, but will just remind you that the Act of Union had only been passed in 1707, perhaps in living memory in 1773, just about. This union of parliaments is still, as we know, controversial. But many Scots had benefited economically, and presumably many were doing well or trying to in London, and apparently getting in Johnson's way. Many Scots had rebelled against the union and the Hanoverian king and tried to bring back the Stuarts in 1715 and 1745, This was certainly in living memory when our travellers made this journey. And evidently Scotland was a topic of discussion among educated and aware people. I didn't really expect to enjoy these books very much, but it is interesting to hear comments by people who were there at the time and who were so aware of the state of things. Almost immediately, Boswell mentions emigration and says, emigration was at this time a common topic of discourse. Dr Johnson regretted it as hurtful to human happiness. For, said he, it spreads mankind, which weakens the defence of a nation and lessens the comfort of living. Men, thinly scattered, make a shift, but a bad shift, without many things. It is being concentrated which produces high convenience. Now Johnson, of course, was a city man and liked being among people and presumably had no understanding of the desire and the need of some people to live in more solitude. As I discovered, one of the causes of mass emigration from Scotland and, of course, Ireland as well, was the increase in rents charged by landlords. Boswell tells us, My fellow traveller and I were now full of the old Highland spirit and were dissatisfied at hearing of rapt rents and emigration. A short detour, I must include the rest of the paragraph that I was just quoting, seeing that I studied in Aberdeen. Listen to this. Hearing that their host had an Eton education, despite being Scottish, Johnson declaimed, Sir, the Highland chief should not be allowed to go further south than Aberdeen. A strong-minded man like Sir James Macdonald may be improved by an English education, but in general, 
they will be tamed into insignificance. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> and of course, I went the other way, from England to Scotland for part of my education. I don't know what that did to me. Back to the state of Scotland. One of the reasons for the huge increase in rents was the belief that the land should be improved and made more productive. No matter that the local people had lived on it for centuries, often in difficulties, but overall surviving and creating their own deep-rooted culture. Boswell refers to tree planting, and many landlords, some English but many local Scots, introduced many such schemes aimed at making money. One was using sea kelp for fertiliser and in glassmaking, which employed a lot of people, no doubt on very low wages, until chemical fertilisers were developed. Even Dr Johnson imagines doing this, and Boswell says, Dr Johnson liked the idea and talked of how he would build a house here, how he would fortify it, how he would have cannon, imagine Dr Johnson with cannon, how he would plant how he would sally out and take the Isle of Mock. And then he laughed with uncommon glee. Wretched man. And in many cases, as you can imagine, these schemes were not a success. And they were sometimes a spectacular failure, as the planners had not taken into account the type of land they were dealing with. And they hadn't realised how harsh the climate can be. Often... If the local people were in the way or could not pay their rent, they were pushed to poorer land where they couldn't make a decent living. And so many of them reluctantly, often in heartbreaking circumstances, such as near starvation or finding their homes burned down deliberately, emigrated, mostly to America and Canada. Later, we'll come back to Canada. Boswell also comments on the law, written on the 11th of September, among another storm of wind on the island of Rasi. The old customary clan-based laws had been changed after the Union of Parliaments, and Boswell says, There is neither justice, peace, nor constable on Rasi. The want of the execution of justice is much felt among the islanders. MacLeod, that was the landowner, very sensibly observed that taking away the heritable jurisdictions had not been of such service in the islands as was imagined. What could formerly have been settled at once must now either take much time and trouble or be neglected. Johnson goes on, a country is in a bad state which is governed only by laws because a thousand things occur for which laws cannot provide and where authority ought to impose. Now destroying the authority of the chiefs set the people loose. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that was Johnson's opinion. And it's the same argument that goes on today. How much authority and local government should be local and how much should be centralised elsewhere. And it's not a problem that's gone away at all. 
Once on the Isle of Skye, Boswell again discusses emigration, obviously of great concern to people at that time. He mentions the role of the taxmen, not tax with an X, but C-K-S, apparently very important tenants, but yet with a lot of power in setting rents. He says, a rapacious chief would make a wilderness of his estate. Interested in designing people flattered them with golden dreams of much higher rents than could reasonably be paid. Some of the gentlemen taxmen or upper tenants were themselves in part the occasion of the mischief of overrating the farms of others. And one of the novels that I looked at dealt with exactly this problem, that it was a local man who imposed a lot of cruelty and hardship on the local people. Johnson then comments that so much emigration of able people had left the west of Scotland depleted and impoverished, apart from those who'd made a lot of money and could live in luxury. I'm amazed how often he returns to the theme. At one point, they actually see an emigration ship on her way out, the Hector, which was, I think, the first ship that took Scots to Nova Scotia. And you can bet that they would pack in as many people as they could get. And the conditions on those journeys were appalling. Boswell says that the, the sight of this emigration ship was a melancholy sight as it sailed westwards out into the Atlantic. This sort of situation is vividly described. Graham McRae Burnett was recently shortlisted for the Booker Prize. It's a sort of an epitome of a Scottish novel. Traditional Scottish literature is different from English literature in many ways, and this is a real example. It has a harsh climate, harsh scenery, a cruel father, difficulties in the local population. A grim book, but I can really recommend it if you're interested in this period. I'd never heard of the writer before, but I would recommend it to you. It does depict the hard life on the coast very vividly with a cruel taxman and rather helpless local people. One incident described in it is a deer stalk, and of course a lot of landowners and English people like deer stalking in Scotland. The main character, then a very young man, disrupts the event just before the stag is killed, not wishing this to happen. He's only young, he realises that they're going to slaughter the stag and he cries out and of course the stag runs away and the landowner and the stalkers are furious and the young boy is treated very cruelly both by them and by his father subsequently and he later becomes brutalised in many ways and commits the murder which is the basis of the plot of the novel. It uses the events of the time to make a very gripping fictional story. Boswell's account of, of all this is not all gloomy, however, and his descriptions of what they see are vivid and interesting. But his overall view seems to be summed up during their visit to the Isle of Mull. And he says, After a very tedious ride, through what appeared to me the most gloomy and desolate country I had ever beheld.
So poor Boswell is not thrilled by this trip at all. Johnson comments on many of the same themes, and indeed on many others. I really was surprised. He talks about religion, education, the fostering of children, farming methods. But of course he was on a fact-finding tour, turning his analytical mind to new situations and places. He starts off, as Boswell suggested, by thinking that the Highlanders and the old clan system, now more or less abolished, were primitive and uncouth. However, as the journey goes on, he sees so much poverty and analyses the situation with some sympathy. He tries to see both sides, realising that the landlords are trying to make the land more productive, but that the suffering of ordinary people is inescapable. However, he does occasionally comment on some of the scenery. He was quite impressed by a place rather like Fingal's Cave, which he was not able to visit because of the weather. And I found it very funny that he starts this incident by saying, we stopped at some rocks on the coast of Mull, just some rocks. And I mean, the scenery is really spectacular, but he said, just some rocks. They'd forgotten to take torches to see the inside of the cave and they had to make do with one small candle and he makes it quite an amusing event. And he describes that the place well repaid our trouble. As so often when writing a talk, I came by chance across a lot more background in Now We Shall Be Entirely Free by Andrew Miller. It's a very enjoyable novel, partly set in the Western Isles just over 30 years after Johnson and Boswell's visit. The hero, John Lacroix, witnessed an atrocity during the Peninsular War and despite his rank of captain, did nothing to stop it. After being returned home to England, seriously injured and very sick, during his recovery he's pursued for political reasons from Somerset to the Western Isles where he seeks refuge. While there, he sees emigration ships, seaweed burning and crofts destroyed in order to make the people leave the area. Some idealistic English people are beginning to move there too, seeking a better life. Do try this novel. Its descriptions are vivid and it really brings to life this desolate period in Scottish history. Madeline Bunting, her love of country, a Hebridean journey. It was published in 2016, and she is on an emotional quest. For some reason that I could not totally fathom, she sets out from her home in London, searching for some enlightenment about what in Britain we might call home. She has some Scottish ancestry and spent childhood holidays there, so she does have some connection with Scotland. She says some look for novelty on their travels, but I was looking for intimacy. I could be a visitor, but no more, I was told by the vibrant Scottish nationalist movement. I had stumbled into an old political quest on these islands to define home, 
and where boundaries lie. I was in company with millions of others who were also in their different ways trying to understand home. Well, Johnson and Boswell, I don't think, were looking for a home in the Western Isles, but she's obviously looking for some kind of rooted connection. She does discuss in detail the issues that concern Johnson. Emigration and depopulation, poverty, <coughs> land use, and she explains many details of the clearances. She refers to books by James Hunter and John Preble, both published in the 1970s, which changed a lot of views about what happened. I was in Scotland at that time, and I was dimly aware of the Preble book and the growing knowledge of Scotland's history, and, back in those days, an increasing wish for independence. Now, she says, the clearances are seen as cruel and avoidable, and some see them as evidence of racism, betrayal and exploitation. Another influential work back in the 70s was a play, well it was a musical drama, The Cheviot, The Stag and The Black Black Oil by John McGrath about how greed and profit seeking can be said to have blighted Scotland over the centuries. I remember being seeing it in Edinburgh during the early 70s and being outraged and moved by it. Interestingly, it was revived by the National Theatre here in London several years ago. Some Scots still blame the English for the shocking events and Bonting says, as we were shown round Kinloch Castle on Rum, the guide asserted that the English were responsible for the clearances. And when I questioned her, suggesting that other forces may also have been at play, a Canadian in the group regarded me with obvious scepticism. She goes on, some argue that it is the lowland Scots who should apologize and that their racism towards the Gales legitimized the process while yet others hold the clan chiefs responsible. There are different views about what caused it. I would suggest that it's a combination of all of these things. I was utterly amazed that the first Kinloch owner, indeed the man who had it built, was an industrialist from Accrington, where I was brought up. Well, as we would say in Lancashire, just fancy that. <laughs> he was John Bullo, and until fairly recently, there was still an engineering firm in the town called Howard and Bullo, so I guess that's where he made his money. He was hugely rich, and Bunting tells us that he bought the Isle of Rum from the Marquis of Salisbury as a shooting estate in 1888. He shipped in enough deer to make its description plausible and spent a few weeks on the island during the shooting season. How very generous of him. She tells us that land was far more available in Scotland than in England and that buying such an estate fulfilled a fantasy partly created by the works of Sir Walter Scott and was a huge status symbol 
Because of the railways, the rich from England could easily travel up to Scotland, <laughs> and so it became the fashion to do just that. Bullo spent vast sums of money on his luxury dwelling on rum, importing the materials and creating a bizarre and fantastical place. <coughs> now, as we are told in her book, a century later, the castle's pink sandstone is crumbling, too soft for the fierce Hebridean gales. The conservatory and its exotic flowers and fruit have long since disappeared. The alligator's sojourn proved particularly short-lived <laughs> after a breakout terrified the guest, honestly. <laughs> Only the hummingbirds are still at the castle, stuffed and encased in glass after a breakdown in the heating system killed them. Bunting's view is that Kinlock Castle can be seen as a memorial to the tensions and brutality which were woven into the running of the British Empire. The Bullows' wealth was the proceeds of the labour of Lancashire's working class, my ancestors. It barely touched the lives of these living in those places. On the Hebrides, only a small number were employed as servants in Gillies. As Bunting concludes, Accrington's working classes had funded Kinlock Castle but perhaps the money would have better served the town's own future. By the 21st century, it was one of the most deprived in England, and I can assure you that Accrington now is rather a sad place in many ways. Rome is in a happier situation now, however. In 1957, the last Bullo sold it to the Nature Conservancy Council to be a nature reserve. This did not quite work out, but in 1992, a community trust was set up to develop a plan to sustain a small population on the island and provide a school and shop. This still continues, and I think it's been quite successful, but no money has been found to renovate the castle. I did read recently that it is for sale, but not on the open market. It is hoped that a buyer will be found who will somehow use the castle for the good of the community, perhaps turning it into a hotel or making jobs that way. So if anybody wants to invest their riches, this is your chance. <laughs> One of the interesting things that Bonting talks about is the Gallic language. She explains how closely a strong sense of family and place that people traditionally have had on the West Coast is related to the language. People belong to places, she says, rather than places belong to people. It is an understanding of belonging which emphasises relationship, of responsibilities as well as rights, and in return offers the security of a clear place in the world. The greeting in Gaelic is where are you from, or where do you come from, rather than the English, how are you? The identity of place and family, more than personal well-being and health. She says Gallic's attentiveness to place 
is reflected in its topographical precision. It has plentiful vocabulary to describe different forms of hill, peak or slope, or each of the stages of a river's course from its earliest rising down to its widest point as it enters the sea. Much of the landscape is understood in anthropomorphic terms, so names of features are often the same as those for parts of the body. It draws a visceral sense of connection between sinew, muscle and bone and the land. And so you can see that when people were uprooted from the land that they had such an intimate knowledge of, it would affect them far more deeply than perhaps in a culture like ours where our connection to the land has been broken to a large extent. Many efforts have been made over the years to halt the decline in Gaelic speaking, and the same in Ireland too, because it was perceived that the use of the language linked people to the land and the local culture. There were stories of more children speaking Gaelic to each other in the playground and of a general increase in its use and in town signs and railway stations too. So the efforts recently to halt the decline in Gaelic speaking has had some success because it's been realised that it is part of the local culture. When I went to Aberdeen in 1965, I remember being amazed to meet people from the Western Isles who phoned home in Gaelic. One article in The Guardian only last October described a decline, however, now. The headline was Gaelic close to societal collapse across Scotland despite an urban renewal. It's thought that the numbers now dropped a great deal and that many people who learned it at school are not continuing to use it in adult life because I think British society is becoming more homogenised in many ways. We will see. However, island life is becoming far more popular and perhaps it's no wonder that an increasing number of people from elsewhere decide to go and live in such places. Perhaps if Scotland does become independent, things in England become more dire, more will do so. That being said, my three friends in Scotland are very much against independence and one even considered recently coming to live in England. However, in 2015, Bonting was quite optimistic about the future, saying that now history is celebrated rather than hidden and there is increasing pride in Scottish culture. Land reforms have helped, starting with the allocation of land to crofters in 1886. There was a, a sort of war about land because crofters could be booted off their land willy-nilly, and in 1886 their position was made more secure. Bonting quotes our local resident as saying, local decision-making has given people a sense of self-worth. It's not utopia, but there is a sense of empowerment that brings a new self-confidence. And this lack of self-confidence and lack of empowerment does go back to the clearances when people were forcibly evicted and had to leave. Things that are positive about Scotland are the use of wind power, although that comes with problems, 
and, and maybe the winds are too strong, maybe it damages the seabed too much, but wind power is one of the industries that Scotland is seriously investing in. One of the most famous and successful industries on the West Coast is Harris Tweed. You'll all have heard of Harris Tweed. You may own some Harris Tweed. It was started in the 1840s by the then owner of Harris, who sent two sisters to Paisley to learn new weaving techniques. And of course, then, Tweed was everywhere. Both men and women wore it in many different situations worldwide, as it's hard-wearing, warm and partly waterproof. It must have suffered a huge decline when man-made fibres were developed, but now it's thriving again, though on a lesser scale. You see it on sale in many guises, and apart from having a Harris Tweed jacket, my husband Bill has now got used to getting such presents as a Harris Tweed sponge bag or a glasses case. I do my bit, you know, you can tell. Now the label can only be used if the cloth is woven in a particular way and on Harris and Lewis. Many other much smaller industries are encouraged and greatly helped by the internet. And as tourism has increased, so has the sale of Scottish craft items. Years ago, a friend of ours referred to pebble painters as being a significant part of the community. We saw some cottages, I think it was, and he said, oh, pebble painters must live there. And indeed, you do see painted pebbles as, as one of the craft industries. We've had various soaps or pieces of jewellery given to us by one of my Scottish friends in particular. My favourite of these has got to be Dundee Marmalade Shower Gel. <laughs> and I did use it, and I did go about smelling delightfully of oranges. <laughs> the Isle of Lewis deserted cottage. There are many ruined and deserted cottages on the west coast of Scotland, dating back to these times. It shows you how strongly built they were and how suitable for the climate that, that there is that much left of them. And some of the modern buildings that, that were built, for instance on St Kilda, they built some more modern houses and they were destroyed by the climate, whereas the traditional crafting houses could see the winters through. And so at last we get to Canada, where a lot of Scots went crossing the Atlantic in our minds, as so many Scots have done in reality. Where they went, Cape Breton, it's bleak, it's windswept, it's in many ways sort of similar to Scotland, I would have thought. One of the books I'm using here is No Great Mischief by Alistair MacLeod. The title refers to what General Wolfe said at the Battle of Quebec, where troops were storming a cliff in, in the wars that were out there and again the Highlanders were, were used as soldiers quite often. Anyway, General Wolfe said apparently when the Highland soldiers had been fighting extremely bravely but they often disobeyed the rules and they wouldn't obey orders that they'd been given because they were used to being more independent and they were perhaps a bit bolshy. He knew that they were likely to be killed, 
in the assault that they were doing. But he said, it will be no great mischief if they fall. And so Alistair MacLeod has used this as his novel title, No Great Mischief. It was quite a common attitude to Highlanders. I think for centuries there's been a prejudice by Lowland Scots against Highlanders. Perhaps they were afraid of them because they were quite warlike and perhaps a bit belligerent. They spoke a different language, which is always a bit alarming. It can be. And there has been a lot of prejudice against them. They were considered to be devious or less well-educated or not to be trusted or whatever. Anyway, a lot of these poor people were forced onto poor land, as I said before, and often extremely reluctantly they decided to emigrate across the Atlantic because the alternative was starvation, literally starvation. Some of them were harassed by their own landlords or taxmen, what we would, from a place of work, call constructive dismissal, where your conditions are made so unpleasant that you resign rather than be sacked. And so the employers can say, oh, we didn't sack them, they resigned, they went willingly. And it was the same with these people. They often decided to emigrate because there was no good alternative. In his book, Alistair MacLeod tells us what may well have been family history although the family he writes about is called MacDonald, not MacLeod. It is labelled a novel, but it really reads more like a family history, telling the story of a family over several generations. The present-day narrator is the fifth generation to live in Canada, but some family names and physical resemblances are still evident, and interestingly, some Gaelic is still spoken. So in some ways, psychologically, they're still very closely linked to Scotland. Family legends are told and retold, one being that their dog, too loyal and devoted to be left behind in Scotland, swam after the small boat taking them to the emigration ship and he was eventually taken on board. And that's a sort of little touching detail that you can get in a novel that a historian wouldn't put in a historical account. And it makes it, to me, all the more alive and poignant. Their four times great-grandfather, Callum, emigrated to Nova Scotia in 1773, the very year that Boswell and Johnson travelled to the Western Isles and saw at least one emigration ship sailing by. The family had been told that there would be good land for them in Canada, But when they got there, after a difficult and very dangerous voyage, during which Callum's wife died and a baby was born, that was not so. On landing, Callum broke down in tears and wept for two days. The narrator asked his grandfather why he was so grief-stricken and says, I remember the way my grandfather drove the axe into the chopping block with such violent force that it became so deeply embedded he had difficulty in getting it out later. He looked at me with such temporary anger in his eyes that I thought he would snatch me by my jacket front and shake me. His eyes said that he could not believe I was so stupid. 
He was, he said, composing himself. And after a thoughtful moment, crying for his history, he had left his country and lost his wife and spoke a foreign language. He had left as a husband and arrived as a widower and a grandfather. And he was responsible for all those people clustered round him. He was like the goose who points the V and he temporarily wavered and lost his courage. And you can imagine landing on a strange shore, no obvious means of survival, your family dependent on you, already one bereavement, you would lose your courage. Like many Scots, the family in this book is very interested in the country's history and, like many other Scots, particularly like conflicts with the English. In this, perhaps, they're a bit like the Northern Irish, still reliving the Battle of the Boyne. On a lighter note, remember that Michael Portillo, that intrepid traveller of our times, he visited Nova Scotia on one of his train journeys in Canada, and he met a large group of people there who had Scottish ancestry and who kept up Scottish traditions very enthusiastically. You know Michael, he takes any opportunity to dress up, this time in a kilt, <laughs> saying how proud he is of his Scottish blood. His mother came from Dundee. I'm sure you're heartbroken to learn that I searched and searched, but I couldn't find a, a photo of him in his kilt. <laughs> you know, a real disappointment that was. Anyway, he was looking at the replica of the Hector, the ship that brought the first Scots to Canada, and he asked local people who was to blame for their plight, and the emphatic answer was the English. So what happened to these settlers in Nova Scotia back in 1773? Well, as I said, when the family landed at Pictou, there was confusion and dismay. They stayed there for two weeks and then at last found a boat to take them to Cape Breton Island. One sees a little group of people, even now, rowing or sailing in their shallop across the Shoppy Fall Sea. They did not know that once they landed, they would be forever. None of them in that boat ever returned to the mainland during their natural lives. One sees them with the saved dog, perhaps, in the shallop's prow, the wind spray flattening the hair along her skull while she scanned the woody coastline with her dark, intelligent eyes. When the boat landed on the gravel strand, the cousins who had written the Gallic letter and the Micmacs who were at home in the land of the trees helped them ashore and continued to help them through the first long winter. So the local people initially were quite friendly and it was only later, I think, that their cultures were destroyed in turn. And now that sort of history in America, in Canada, in Australia and New Zealand is being studied with a lot of contrition that the local indigenous people were so badly treated as the Scots had been in, in Scotland, even worse. I mean, the, the indigenous people in these places, I think, were treated utterly appallingly. 
Anyway, the family in this family history con novel did eventually receive formal papers about their entitlement to land. They increased and dispersed, but retained strong clan ties. And when the narrator as a child met relatives, they always asked about his ancestors, concluding that he is part of the Red Clan, and they used the Gallic word for that which I can't pronounce. He and the other modern youngsters would laugh at this when they were young, as you would, but later in life came to appreciate and value it. Life was hard for the early settlers and the climate difficult. Even generations later, the winter ice can kill and the narrator's parents did indeed die young this way, being frozen on the ice and his elder brothers lived in very primitive conditions. The narrator, in fact, is a city person and well-educated, so eventually he did well, but the former generations had a very, very hard time. Another book that I looked at was a book about her own family by the very famous short story writer, Alice Munro. Her family, emigrated from the Ettrick Valley in the Border Hills south of Edinburgh and the land there was described to have no advantages and so her ancestor became determined to emigrate to America and she uses family letters and documents to write a very vivid account about their sail across the Atlantic in 1818. She describes how they settle in various places of what is now Canada and she imagines events and relationships based on the facts she knows. One little boy she vividly describes during the account of the voyage is full of life with a great sense of his own importance. But he died a month after they landed because he just couldn't cope with the situation, maybe he got some disease. And she suggests that in subsequent generations, her family loses some of its courage and vigour, and that many of her relatives were oddities or failures. Well, perhaps we've all got relatives that are oddities and failures, but there you go. I'm sure that this is not often the case and that many Canadians with Scottish ancestry are vigorous and active citizens, but it may well be that some of them deeply miss the connections to the land that their ancestors had known so well. Who can tell what effect that big uprooting had in earlier generations? And so we come to the book that started me off on all this, the first one of these books that I read and that made me offer to do the talk for the Literary Topics group. Adam Nicholson's Sea Room. As a young man, he was given the tiny shunt islands in the Minch between the Outer Hebrides and Skye. He was given these islands by his father, Nigel Nicholson, who'd bought them for just under £2,000 in 1937 from a Colonel MacDonald who'd bought them from the writer Compton Mackenzie. So this is another example of English people (coughs) buying Scottish land for their own entertainment. Nicholson is well aware of the controversy around absentee landlords, particularly English ones, and particularly semi-aristocratic ones, as he is. 
He's the grandson of Theta Sackville West. She's a part of the family that owns that enormous house, Noel. The cartoon that he puts in this book, and it's a, a city businessman sitting on a cliff covered in guano and being attacked by seabirds. And he's well aware of the incongruity of an Englishman like him, a very posh Englishman, a toff, as he would call it, owning some islands on the west coast of Scotland. He recounts an incident when a man in a pub accosts him. Are you the man who says he owns the shants? Yes, I said, smiling charm, the English defence. I am, actually. An insult in reply, then and I won't try and do the Scottish accent, you can no more say that those islands belong to you than I can say that I'm the landlord of the moon. Nicholson privately agrees that his tenant, who manages the sheep he has on the island, and who knows and deeply loves the land, he agrees that his tenant is the master and I the pupil. This book is a reflective, poetic, vivid evocation of these islands, where Nicholson has spent a great deal of time over the years, but as well as enjoying the solitude there and, and the scenery, he does try to be a good landlord, and he is very aware of some of the problems. And he writes this book. He emphasises that in the past, the Shants were not considered to be remote, but were connected to the rest of the world by the sea and the sailing route, and the Minchie was a very busy sailing route. He covers many aspects of life there, archaeology, the previous inhabitants of the island going back to the Iron Age, farming over the centuries, wildlife, geology, detailed knowledge of the sea and sailing, and the clearances though he thinks that the people left the chance voluntarily rather than being cleared. He refers to the taxman who probably lived in one of the ruined houses on the island, which is now being excavated. And he said, this is our connection to the past, that the, these houses are a memorial to the people that lived and farmed there. He's now going to pass the island, which I presume he has now done, to one of his sons. And before he does that, he's reflecting what the islands mean to him, learning a great deal more about their history, which as a younger man, when he inherited the islands, he more or less ignored. He comments that both he and his father have experienced an enlargement of their lives by living there, he says, 40 years later, he wanted, I think, to give that same enlargement to me, that wonderful sea room, that surge of freedom which a moated island provides. The gift was this, the sensation I can now summon anywhere and at any time of standing in the pure air streaming in off the Atlantic alone on these islands, which the last inhabitants left a hundred years ago. I have felt at times, and perhaps this is a kind of delirium, no gap between me and the place. I have been shaped by those island times, 
and find it difficult now to achieve any distance from them. The place has entered me. He says, I may love them more than anywhere else on earth, but I do not feel that I have anything resembling an exclusive right to them, or that any landlord should. Land, particularly land, that is a rich concentration of the marvels of the natural world, is to be shared. This book is an attempt to share the chance. I'm sure that the first time I read this, I thought this is my kind of book. With many detours into the past and discussing the topics I mentioned, he takes us through a summer until in October the weather forces him to leave. He had more sense than Boswell and Johnson. He ends the book with a long reflection on the modern issues affecting the future of the Shants. These include wildlife conservation, possibly industrial development in the area, farming and land ownership. Nicholson is thoughtful and sensitive about them all, but he persists in his determination to pass these islands on to his son. He adds, the expression of the dilemma is in the solution I propose, community-minded private ownership, with a resolution to share this place as much and as widely as we can. But he said, does Tom believe this? The question is not in the end one of regulation and law, but of a culture of mutual respect and decent regard, not only because the history of these islands is of eviction and dispossession, but because respect and decency are absolutely good in themselves. So say no more. On that note, I'll stop talking. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.